in this episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. It's crazy. And that's the thing that people think like they can come in and, and get rich quick in two to three years. I think it takes at least 10. You know, it takes a decade. That's a career, you know, and, and, and to that point, like every milestone you achieve, you're like, oh, damn, that goal line just got further. You know, like the, the, the milestones become bigger. The vision becomes grander. Uh, and in terms of just getting started, we say that all the time. And the guys and girls who have been with us for like three to four years, fuck me, if we're just getting started, like we just broke our back for four years. You know, I don't know if I got another four in me, but they, they, they see the optimism in it. Um, and I think that's the hardest part too, because we always see so much opportunity ahead of us. It's staying disciplined, right? You can't say yes to everything. You, know, you have to stay focused and invest all of your time, focus and resources into the, the task at hand. Welcome back to another powerful episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bear, founder and CEO of Bear Performance Nutrition. Every week, we bring you insightful stories, knowledge, and inspiration to help you reach your full potential in life, fitness, and business. If you enjoy the message we're promoting in this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes that embody the Go One More mindset. All right, we have Jim, oldest brother, Super Coffee. Let's go, man. Happy to be here. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. It's just a short drive, 30 minutes from our office to yours. So excited to uh, to get this done. And you've been in Austin for what, like a year and a half, two years now? Yeah, year and a half, just just under. Dude, I've been here for seven, coming up on eight years now. Yeah. And my dream since being here was to buy and build a ranch and you beat me to it already. <laughs> Dude, that wasn't part of the plan. I think it, it happened. We got uh, my, my buddy, Devin, who, you know, Devin LeVake and I were down here and we, uh, a friend of a friend was selling their family farm and the opportunity was too good to pass up on. And, and we moved some th things around and made it happen. I'm so jealous, man. Like I've walked so many properties like I was telling you. Yeah. And I brought it up on, on the podcast and on social media so many times where I've in Texas, it's, it's, especially central Texas, it's hard to find a property that is just like perfect. Right. Terrain features, big oak trees, some water features. Right. Typically you get like this flat piece of land with a bunch of mesquite. Right. And it's hot as shit. Right. And there's no water. Right. You found a gold mine. <laughs> Dude, it's beautiful. It's, it's super hilly. There's caves. There's a live spring. We just got two donkeys, which are awesome. I didn't know how cool and smart and social donkeys are. Uh, and then we're throwing up like a, a 5,000 square foot barn house, but it's going to be a gym. It's going to have bunk beds. Uh, it's going to be fun. We'll, we'll be able to get out there for retreats and, and workouts. I'm sure Devin is going to challenge you to some crazy shit. Does the, do the donkeys constitute as ag exempt or was the property already ag exempt? The property was ag exempt. The, the, the guy we bought it from keeps seven head of cattle out there. He just takes one per year for his family. Uh, so, but you have to maintain that. And if you lose the ag exemption, you got to pay three years of back taxes. I don't know if the donkeys qualify, but like you could get bees and, and bees qualify. So Devin wants to do honey. So we'll probably, we'll probably do something like that. Three years of back taxes sound horrible. Sounds like it sucks. I don't know what it would be. It's probably not that bad, but like that versus nothing is, is bad. <laughs> so what brought you from DC to Austin? Was it to essentially set up the HQ of Super Coffee? 
Yes. Um, and like the personal allure too. So we went from DC to New York. We were in New York for the last four or five years. New York is a special kind of hustle, you know, especially in beverage. And I think the Frank Sinatra line is so true. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere in, in New York City in the beverage industry. Um, and once we feel like we put a flag in the ground up there, we were looking for the next move. And, and I'm all about momentum. And Austin is a city that certainly has it, not just in food and beverage, but in tech, in finance and real estate. Uh, and that attracts talent, right? And last year was our first full year in, in Austin, 2021. Uh, we hired a new CFO who was the, previously worked at Whole Foods, which is based in Austin. Uh, we raised a Series C round of funding that I don't think would have been possible if we weren't based here. Um, so momentum was key and we just wanted to be in that mix. It's interesting you say that because I always go back to momentum. Like I'm a firm believer that you don't always have the opportunity to come across it, mm -hmm. but when you do, it's like I do everything possible not to lose it. Mm -hmm. I will throw all my money, all the chips at momentum mm -hmm. and do whatever I have to do to keep rolling with it. That's what Austin, Austin has that. I mean, that's what attracted me to Austin. When I got here in 2014 with the army, I didn't know what it was. Like I didn't know what momentum felt like, but I could feel almost like a gut feeling. I could feel there was something here and it was brewing and it was building and I needed to be a part of it. Totally. And it's, it's energy, man. Like whether like you and I are friends, but like we lift each other up, you know, so indirectly, like I see you working out. I'm like, damn, I got to go get my miles in. You know, I see BPN launching new products. I'm like, hell yeah. And, and, and super coffee's launching new stuff, you know? And it's like this, this sort of unspoken energy that makes everybody around you kind of feel it too. But like I describe it like, you know, when you go down to uh, town Lake loop, yep. downtown Austin, I think it's where I was first sold is I went down there. I'm from central Pennsylvania, right? Small town. And if you're running, you're running by yourself or like you're not running at all. Right. And I went downtown Austin to do that 10 mile loop and the energy, the, the, the positivity w that was there. Like I can't go by that loop anymore. And if I see someone running, I feel like I feel jealous. Yeah. I want to be out there too. Right. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, with the way Super Coffee has been built and your guys' message, Austin just sounds like a place where it fits. Totally, totally. I mean, that loop, every day I go, I, I run on that loop because the, the people hold me accountable. You know, I'm like, I, I see them running, I see them putting in the work, all ages, all sizes, all different skill levels. And it, I just heard recently, it's the busiest running trail in the country per, per Google Maps. I and believe it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then everywhere from like the little dive bars to the food trucks to to big corporations, you know, private equity, even down here, like Tesla's building the, the Gigafactory, Apple's moving a headquarters down here. Facebook just, just got real estate in the largest building in Austin. So, um, it's momentum, man. And, and like I said, it attracts a quality type of person to it. And how big is your guys HQ here in Austin? Um, HQ, we have 15 people in Austin. We have 12 people in our New York city office. And then we have 130 people remote, 120 people remote. We're 151 full-time. I would love to eventually, towards the end of this podcast, dive into managing in-house versus remote and how you kind of navigated that. For sure. But to really dive into the business, the brand, what is Super Coffee? Yeah, so we are a beverage brand through and through. We make a bottle of coffee that has 10 grams of protein, two cups of caffeine, or two cups of coffee in it, 200 milligrams of caffeine, and zero sugar. Uh, I think the key for us is we wanted to taste like a Starbucks Frappuccino with none of the sugar or calories. Uh, my brothers and I, we all played sports in college and we didn't want to drink those, those coffees that have 45 grams of sugar, 300 calories, didn't really give us energy. 
Uh, so we started making our own. My, my youngest brother actually started Super Coffee. He, he started brewing it in his dorm room. And instead of sugar, he used sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit, uh, 10 grams of protein, MCT oil. And it gave him the fuel for his 5 a.m. practices, his late nights in the library. And his teammates were like, yo, what are you, what are you doing? You know, are you on Adderall? Are you, are you, are you doing some drugs? Like, let us get in on that. And he's like, no, I'm just making this coffee. Uh, and never intended to start a business. He just needed a solution for himself. Now, seven years later, here we are. You know, what's funny about that is I relate to that so much because really? that's how BPN started. I was in my college apartment and I got to a point where I realized I can't find what, what I need, what I want in a supplement. And I can't afford to keep like spending all this money on a monthly basis. So right. what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy all these ingredients in bulk. I'm going to make one big investment and then I'm going to mix up my pre-workouts in my dorm room. I'm using it myself. And then friends started seeing this. So I'd mix them up in a baggie and I'd hand them to friends. So, I mean, freshman, sophomore, beginning of junior year, I was like the pre-workout drug dealer yeah. to my friends, man. And uh, cause if you walked in my room, you'd see all these white powders, you'd see a food scale. And then I'd hand people baggies with white powder in it, which was pre-workout. And I remember I would buy a food scale that only measure in grams. And then I'd have this bag of caffeine where I'm like, all right, I need to measure two to 300 milligrams of caffeine. So I'd like wait till the scale hit one gram and I'd dump a little bit out. So I never really knew what I was mixing up, but that was the birth of, of BPN. And it sounds like it was the same, the birth of super coffee. Dude, see, it's so funny because my brother's RA, like the resident advisor came by with campus security because so many people were coming in and out of Jordan's dorm room to, to buy the coffee. So they thought for sure he was selling like Coke or weed or something. And they walked in and they all became good friends because Jordan started making coffee for them too. So it's just identical stories. Yeah, It is wild. So you know, Jordan was the, the founder of, of the product. Yeah. Did he start manufacturing that before he brought you guys in or did he bring you guys in first and then you guys went to scale? Uh, he brought Jake in first. So I, I was, I graduated in 2015 when all this was going down. Jordan was, was making the recipe, selling it to his teammates. Uh, and then I had a job, I was a financial analyst for, for the Blackstone group in New York for, um, my the first three months of my career. Uh, I say three months because August of 2015, I had graduated in May. Jordan called me up and said, Hey man, I'm, I'm dropping out of school. And he, this is a full scholarship basketball player, starting point guard of, after his freshman season, all conference kid. And he was like, I'm giving all that up because I see a big opportunity here in this coffee space. I don't know how to do it, but I know that it's going to take a lot of time, effort and energy. And if I'm a full-time student athlete, it's not going to work. He's like, I'm not recruiting you. I'm just telling you as my older brother, like, this is what I'm doing. And in my head, like, I just went into like big brother mode. I'm like, dude, I can't let you do this by yourself. You know, and Jake was heading into his senior year. Jake's the middle brother. He was playing football at Georgetown, uh, which is why we started in DC. And Jake was like, look, I'm going to give you guys every free hour that I have, but I'm two semesters away from a Georgetown degree. He was an all, all conference wide receiver his senior year too. So like he had to kind of stay, stay in that. Um, so it was the three of us sort of just given every hour we had to this for the first year. It's like a family of stud athletes. <laughs> it was it's no Alabama, you know, when Jake and I played football in the Patriot league and, and Jordan was a D2 basketball player at uh, Philadelphia university. Now I was telling you um, before we started recording, Interesting enough that what I found is there is this really strong strategic power in bringing someone into a business that has a background in investment banking mm -hmm. or Wall Street. They just understand business at a whole another level. And 
as I was prepping for this podcast, I was thinking, I always think about it now that I'm, my wife's pregnant or having a kid, like what kind of path I would like to see that, that child take in the future. One is military. Right. I'd, I'd love to see them join the military and, and learn what I've learned through that process and experience. But as I was prepping for this, I was like, maybe like Wall Street is a really good place to start. It just seems like you gain a lot of insight into the capabilities and and leverage of what's out there to build a business. Absolutely, and and you see so many businesses. So you get so, you you work at one company or one bank, you get exposure to so many, right? And so that I think that experience is unique for me. the The whole finance system, I couldn't get. I wasn't passionate about it. Like I, I went to Colgate University, small liberal arts school, and. What, what kids did, they would go to Wall Street or they'd get into real estate. You know, those were two paths where you could go make a lot of money. And I was like, while I figure out what I wanna be when I grow up, I think making money is probably a fine solution for now. But the, the, the purpose of it all was how can we make more money for people who are either wealthy or on their way to being wealthy, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and for me, like, it was a grind. Like you're putting in, like these, these investment banking analysts come right out of school, you're making 100 grand, 150 grand, but you're, you're working until three in the morning. And then you can come in at 10 a.m., but you're just doing, it's just not a sustainable lifestyle. And for what, right? Like you and I, it's blood, sweat, and tears building the businesses that we're, we're, we're passionate about and proud of. Uh, but that's for our purpose. You know, that we're not making money for other people doing that. Our new CFO that we hired, he has a, a background in investment banking. And I can see the, the, I almost want to say like collateral damage of the work right. that they've done in the past. And he's done in the past because it'll be 2 a.m., and I'll get an email from him. Right. He like, he has no problem logging work hours. Yeah. And probably because of his background, it's like, that's, that's what he was built and raised on. Before we dive any deeper into that, I want to talk to you about why we started Bayer Performance Nutrition and how our products can help you improve your health and performance. In 2012, while I was studying nutrition in college, I was tired of searching for supplements that would meet my standards of quality and effectiveness. So after months of ordering ingredients in bulk and making products for myself, I decided to scale the operation and work with manufacturing teams to offer these formulas to you. And since then, BPN has evolved and our product line has grown. We offer the most effective supplements that can help you improve your workouts, optimize your recovery, and supply essential superfood nutrients so you can operate at your full potential. Our products are tested for banned substances and certified by Informed Sport, so you have peace of mind that they're not contaminated with harmful ingredients. Head over to bpnsups.com to take your health and performance to the next level. You know, when I was building BPN, I was in Korea. I called my brother, Preston. He was six months into his first job out of college. And I said, hey man, I need help. I'm building this thing. Will you move? And he quit his job, packed up a U-Haul in Pennsylvania and drove to Texas like the next week. Let's go. It's like, there's these parallels as I'm seeing, um, as the brand's being like started and built. So when you guys actually decided, all right, this is what we're doing. Let's, let's scale. Let's go to production. One, how did you find a co-packer, a manufacturer? And two, how did you fund that initial production order? Yeah. Two great questions. So, um, the whole, the last seven years of Super Coffee have been extremely iterative. It's been a total evolution. And uh, wh what I mean is like, we would, we would control what we can control. And in the early days, co-packers wouldn't take us because we couldn't meet minimum order sizes. Distributors wouldn't carry us because we didn't have stores to sell to. And stores wouldn't take our products because we didn't have distributors that they bought from. 
So it was like this, this chicken or the egg issue. And, and we were like, you know what? We're going to make all of our own product by hand. We're going to make all of our own deliveries. That solves the, the manufacturing. That solves the distribution. And we, we eventually found this space up in Baltimore, Maryland, which is 45 minutes north of DC. It's a Domino sugar factory. And the guy happened to have an old bottling line, like a hundred gallon kettle with some spouts that, that would fill bottles. He was like, look, I don't, I don't operate this thing, but my last shift ends at 8 p.m. and my first one gets here at 6 a.m. You guys could come in, use the equipment, just make sure it's cleaned up by morning. So that's what we would do. We, the three of us would go up there. We'd, we'd bring ingredients. We'd, we'd brew the coffee. We'd bottle it up. And then the next morning we'd deliver it to, to our stores. And at first it was just one Whole Foods market. And that was the only store that we had. And we knew that in order to, to be successful, we had to sell a lot of coffee. Well, if you only have one store, you got to focus on selling coffee at that store. So we broke that store's weekly sales record in the first four hours. And then we took that data from, from that store manager. We brought it to the same store, the same Whole Foods right down the street. And we said, hey, look at what we're breaking records up the street. Allow us to do this in your store. And we wouldn't move on from one store to the next until we actually had that good selling story in a neighborhood, super small scale. Um, but it was the three of us and it was manageable. We, we, we really controlled what we could control. And uh, how did we fund it? So we reached out to our, our two aunts um, and they never had any kids. So they had a, a little bit of a savings saved up. We, did, we don't come from money. Our, our mom worked at the Y. Our dad is a construction worker. So like we, and we have no investor network at this time. Um, so they were like, look, we love this. We love you guys. We tell you're passionate about it. Here's $30,000 to get started. Uh, and that's what we used to buy the ingredients. We rented a van and, and that's how we got started. That's epic. I didn't know that story, man. Yeah. That's wild. So when did you guys sleep? Like you're working through the night, you're working the stores during the day. Yeah. So we had a system where, uh, if, if you, you only had to make deliveries one day a week, we were making deliveries like three to five days a week, but, uh, the two people who, who made the product didn't have to make the deliveries. And the guy who made the deliveries got to go home at a decent hour to, to, from the factory to, to sleep. How did you get that first like foothold? with Whole Foods? We walked into the store. So we went to that store that morning and we bought a bunch of Honest Tea bottles because we didn't have packaging at this point. We drank all the Honest Tea. We printed out labels at, at FedEx and the Super Coffee labels, filled it with Jordan's dorm room blend. The seals on the caps were cracked because we drank this shit. And we went back, we went back to that same store and we found the store manager. This guy was on his hands and knees, like packing out beans. We're like, hey man, we're, we're super coffee. You got to try this. He's like, what, what are you guys doing? Like is, he drank it. He's like, all right, it's pretty cool. Tell me you go to school right down the street. Like we just accepted, we just started accepting Georgetown dining dollars. If you could get your football team to come in here and support your product and buy some food from my hot bar. I'll take it. And that's how we, that's how we got in. Wow. <laughs> it's great. Like we naive, like it was total naive optimism. We had no idea what the system was, what the process was. We were like, let's just go ask somebody. But you need that. Like yeah. that that's the best part, man being naive and ignorant of the risks or what goes into it in the beginning, you absolutely need that. I had that. I had that for years. And if I knew now what, what I knew back then, or if I knew back then what I know now, right. Part of me is like, would I have gotten started because of knowing what goes into this journey and process and knowing how little I knew back then, I mean, it's pure bliss and ignorance. Totally. Totally. I mean, if I, exactly, if I knew now what, or if I knew back then what I know now, I don't think we would have done this. It would have been such a battle. I mean, that's how it is for most business owners and entrepreneurs. Totally. And the thing is a lot of people see businesses, especially like, I mean, super coffee, you go into any gas station, you see super coffee, right? I, uh, I was at the, the grocery store the other day and I was looking for a coffee creamer that didn't have seed oils in it. 
every coffee creamer has seed oils in it. Yep. Like canola oil, vegetable oil. Yep. They're super coffee. Let's go. I was like, dude, I'm grabbing this. Like this fits exactly what I need in my morning coffee. Totally. And uh, the, the, the thing I'm trying to point out is every business starts here. Yeah. Like every business starts going to find a, a bottling run where you can only do it overnight and then loading up your truck the next day. Like that, that's bootstrapping. Totally. Totally. I think the one, the, the difference between our business and this is why I envy you sort of grass is always greener though, is we've had to raise so much capital over the years to continue to fuel that growth. You know, for one bottle of coffee costs us a dollar to make it. We're selling it to our distributors for dollar 65. We're making 65 cents to pay for everything. Mm -hmm. 150 people, marketing, rent, vehicles, like the whole deal is, is paid by that small margin. So for us, we have to sell hundreds of millions of bottles to make money. And, and we're just now getting to that, to that point. It's like a game of, of volume at that point. Totally. Yeah. And we knew from the beginning that it was low margin, high volume, but like we thought high volume was going to be 10 million in revenue, you know, because back then we were like, how the hell are we going to get to 10 million in revenue? Come to find out it's a hundred million in revenue. And it's like you, it's seven years to get there. I mean, it, it, when you first get started, a million dollars sounds like oh, everything. Yeah. Right. And you realize, okay, once we hit a million dollars, our expenses are a lot larger than I thought they were when we were making $10,000. Totally. We would, we would make deliveries and we'd print out the invoices from QuickBooks and it was like a $62 invoice. I was like, we need a hundred thousand more of these. And then we're, we're on our way. <laughs> so, you know, after that stage of really bootstrapping in the beginning, bottling your stuff, taking it to Whole Foods, what was that next evolutionary path that was kind of a win or a step up from like 2016 to 2018? What do those two years look like before you guys got on, on Shark Tank? Yeah. So, um, still inch wide mile deep, but instead of going from like a city block to a neighborhood, we went from city, like we went from DC to Baltimore to Philly. And in 2017, we hired our first employee, Ray Clatterbuck. He's still with us today, full divisional director now. Uh, and we were like, Ray, we built up DC over the last 18 months you need to step in and continue this so we can go open new markets. That's when my brothers and I moved to New York City in 2017 to, to expand the brand up there. Uh, at, the, at this time, we had probably 50 stores. It was big enough to find a local distributor. So we didn't have to spend our time printing invoices and, and making deliveries. That was a huge unlock for us. And we got into the next step up of a co-packer that was based in New Jersey. So they fueled all of the product from New York City down to DC. And then towards the end, I think 2017 is when we locked in our, our big co-packer that we're still with today. How many, or how much revenue were you guys doing in 2017? 2017, we did like 700 grand in year two. And before moving into a co-packer space, how many bottles were you guys bottling a day or a week yourself? We would do like a thousand bottles a night, which doesn't sound like that much, but it was literally... Imagine a beer pitcher filled with coffee, pouring it into little 11 ounce bottles. It's all manual. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while. And like, we got to the point where we were hiring like temp workers, like the people who would work at the sugar factory would stay a couple hours after work and we'd give them 10 bucks an hour to help us. Um, but it, now you, you press a button at the co-packer that we're at today and it does 900 bottles a minute. It's like, it's amazing to, to watch it flow through like that. And what minimums did you have to meet to move in with that co-packer? Uh, man, I think the first run was 60,000 bottles. Um, so, uh, really like I think 5,000 cases of product. It was, it was a lot of, of product. 
and the good news is we had a 12 month shelf life. So I think it was like three or four months worth of inventory in that first run, but all of our cash went to that run and we didn't have terms. There was no credit terms back then. So it was pay, prepay. So you pay before it's made. And then all of our suppliers paid us on net 30. So our cash cycle was terrible. You know, we were putting cash out the door and we weren't getting paid for 90 days. I remember those days, man. Yeah. No, no terms. No terms. That's like one of our first manufacturers. We were, we were trying to establish a relationship with them and we didn't have terms. So it was, you know, 50% down when you place the production order. We had 12 week lead times. Then when they went to ship it, you paid the remaining invoice. And because we were growing, we were running on inventory, but we couldn't afford to like make a big production order. So we're stacking POs. Mm-hmm. So we have all this money tied up in, ca- in, in inventory. And this was 2017 for us. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. Cash flow is king. Cash flow is king, man. And, and even today, it's not a perfect system. You know, we, the co-packing has become such a, such a high demand uh, sort of necessity in, in our industry that these co-packers still require terms. So they don't have any exposure prepay. I mean, so they don't have any exposure and then we're still getting paid net 30. So like our, our day's sales outstanding are like, 60 and our days payables are like 45. So we're still in that negative cash flow. Up until this point, were you guys still self-funded or did you bring on any investors? So we raised in, in 2016, we raised like $500,000 from this local group of DC investors and how we met them. We were pouring samples out of Whole Foods. Jake was wearing his Georgetown football hat. Some guy comes up. He's like, oh man, I'm a triple Hoya. I went to Georgetown for law school. How can I help you guys? And we're like, well, sir, we're raising money right now. Here's our products. Here's our story. Here's our plans. He's like, all right, well, let me introduce you to some of my clients. And he introduced us to some local local pe- people like bankers in the DC area. And that's how we got got that funding. And and we never would have, we never would have raised that had we not been in the store pouring samples, sort of building the brand. We went to we were pouring samples to sell coffee, you know, not to raise money. But I think that's like the, the story of creating your own luck. Did you feel the momentum at this point? Yeah. Yeah. But every time you got momentum, you got punched in the face by something else. You know, it's like the, the, that whole, like even to this day, we're not a national brand with Whole Foods. Whole Foods was our first customer seven years ago. And we ha- we've still gone region by region. Like we're not in Whole Foods in New York city. So like our, our business plan, when we pitched those investors was we would be in 300 Whole Foods by the end of 2016. And I think we were in 30, you know? So like, I mean, we delivered the revenue that we said we would. So they, they always sort of backed us and supported us. Um, but things just never happened the way that we thought they would in our minds. How much equity did you have to give up that, that first 500 K? So I would say probably 10% of the business, you know, we, for the first three years, 16, 17, 18, we raised a series of convertible notes. We raised $5 million through convertible notes. And, and every, every round it, like the first note had a 3 million cap. We'd go out, we'd sell more product. Second note had a 5 million cap. We'd go out and sell more product. I think the cap ranged from like 3 million to 12 million and all of that converted into our series a, the valuation of our series a was like a 50 million post money. So like, I think we raised 15 million bucks, but we, what we didn't know is all of these notes converted at those, those lower caps. So even though it was only 15 million, we sold like 50% of the company to bring on that, that 15 million. It was, it was tough. And was that, was that strategic from your background in investment banking or was that just survival at that point? Survive in advance. It was like friends, family, and fools, you know, like whoever was willing to give us money, we'd take it, you know, like the VC, the big VC firms and the private equity firms in the beverage space were like, yeah, this is cool, but call us when you get to 10 million in sales. And we're like, how the hell are we going to get to 10 million in sales without you guys? 
you know, so we, we had really hodgepodged it together with some great friends and, and, uh, people who have become very close advisors and friends, uh, through this journey. That's why I, I respect the, the, um, the entrepreneur mm-hmm. so much, man. And in like modern day is because you just look at like, you look at an entrepreneur and based off social media or, or the media or anything else, it's just this title. But for me, it's like, it's, it's something that's really earned. Yeah. And you look at someone who has gone through what I call like the mud and gotten the other side and you have to be resourceful. You have to be creative and you have to have had a lot of nights laying in your bed thinking tomorrow's my last. Yeah. Totally. Like, were there days where you, you as his brothers thought there's no way we're digging out of this? Well, so the cool thing about that is if one of us thought that the other two didn't. You know, and, and I think we've, we took turns with those sort of, um, that, that pessimism, you know, or that self doubt. Uh, but we've always had three of us. So two would always lift, lift somebody up or if two were fighting or quarreling, one would come in and sort of be the voice of reason. Um, but what you just said about entrepreneurs, I think is an important piece that there's no right way, right? The right way is the way that works. And and what worked for you is very different than what, what worked for us, even though there are a lot of similarities. And then uh, from a fundraising journey, I think our path is super unconventional for how we sort of pieced it together. Some people raise a seed round, then they go right to a series A. Uh, so I think f- for me, I was, I always psyched myself out like with this expectation that I had of the way that things should go based on stories that I've heard or articles that I've read. Uh, and now looking back on it, like the right way is the way that works. So don't think that there's a rule book or, or a, a game plan of how this needs to go. Uh, because I guarantee you it's going to be different for, for you when you start. Oh yeah. There's, there's no blueprint. Yeah. I mean, even in the beginning of this episode, talking about super coffee's beginnings and BPN's beginnings, very, very similar. But then there was a point where we went in completely different paths and directions. Totally. And where you end up at the end of, of your business or your life before you sell or, or die is the sum of decisions you made along the way. Right. And some of those decisions end you somewhere. They put you somewhere. And in both our cases, completely different directions. So how did you brothers decide who is filling what role in the business? Like how did you, how did you get CEO? Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And in, in the early days, we all sort of wore every hat, you know, we were all making deliveries. We were all printing invoices and we were doing whatever work was, was needed, needed to be done. Uh, and what we realized is the business needed three critical functions to grow. It needed, Revenue to support the, sorry, it needed cash to support the operation. So investors, Uh, it needed revenue to grow and and meet milestones so we can continue to to raise money. And then operate, it needed to be operationally sound, meaning we needed the product for the sales team to sell. Jake, the middle brother is our chief revenue officer. He's the happy go lucky salesman, you know, just a social dude, life of the party, friendly, good looking, like, and, and that just came naturally to him, you know? So we didn't say like, Jake, you're the sales guy. Jake just went and sold a lot of coffee. You can, you can even see it like the interviews. He's like always smiling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's annoying. I'm like, <laughs> shut up and get back to work. Uh, Jordan is, is operations and innovation. You know, he's the tinkerer, the founder. He's always looking for ways to improve the formula even today. Uh, so he, he leads the operations team. He's the chief operating officer making sure that we have product on time and in full for Jake and his team to sell. Uh, and then for me, the third piece was, was being financially sound on the back end and, and making sure we had the capital to support the operations and the sales effort. So as CEO, I oversee our finance function and our marketing function, which supports the rest of the business. So it just naturally worked out to 
each brother owned their strengths and then kind of distributed weaknesses. Yeah. It what's crazy is like, we're, we kind of have this, this conversation often is like, did we get lucky picking this industry or this business or would we have made it work someplace else? Because our, our personalities fit our roles so well. Granted, we all do shit that we don't want to do every day, but for the most part, what we get to work on is what we're strong at. It's like me and my brother, we, we never decided you're doing this. I'm doing that. Right. It kind of naturally just worked out where he gravitated more towards operations. Uh, he, he has a background in uh, degree in operations and then order fulfillment mm. and uh, procurement. And then I just love, like, I think based off of my military experience, the leadership aspects, mm-hmm. marketing and brand building. Mm-hmm. So we completely different paths. And I don't want to do his job. He doesn't want to do my job. And we see each other's lanes. Right. So I get asked the question all the time, like, what's it like working with your brother? I'm like, it's great. We, we are both fully invested into this brand. Like we will, we will live and die by this brand and we play off each other's strengths and weaknesses. Totally. Same for you guys. Totally. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think the end of the day, you're still brothers, you know, whether this thing works for a billion dollars or for zero, you're still going to love each other. So I think that takes some of the insecurities out of it, which is nice for us. You also have, I mean, in my case, Jordan, our youngest brother, Jordan's 26, Jake's 28, I'm 29. We have 26 years of built up trust and respect and memories and, and all of those things that other founders just don't, don't share. Um, I think one of the challenges today is still being crystal clear about those roles. The lines get blurred sometimes where Jordan wants to help out with marketing or Jake has feedback on ops. And, and that's kind of when, when accountability becomes unclear if somebody's sort of stepping in, stepping out of their lane. That's natural though. And I think that's just resolved with clear communication and transparency being direct. Yeah, no, I agree. So then going into 2018, when you guys went on Shark Tank, what is the state of the business at this point? And what was this, this strategy going on Shark Tank? Yeah. So what's interesting about Shark Tank, we, we filmed in June of 2017. That was the year we did 700K in revenue. We thought we were going to do 2 million, but remember we didn't get the Whole Foods orders. Uh, so the, on the episode, we said, we're going to do $2 million in sales this year. We're asking for a million dollars of investment for 10% stake in the company, $10 million valuation. And, uh, then we, so from that point, uh, the episode didn't air until February of 2018 and 2018, we ended up doing like four and a half million. Probably some of that growth from 700 to four and a half was due to the exposure from Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, what, what happened on the episode, we, we didn't get a deal from any of the sharks. We didn't even get an offer. They, they loved us. They loved our energy and our discipline. They, they enjoyed the products. Um, but at the time we filmed June of 2017, I think our all time revenue was like 500,000 bucks. We had a forecast for 2 million and, but they, they based our valuation that 10 million off of the 500,000. They're like, guys, this valuation's ridiculous. And I mean, they've all had bad experiences with beverage. Barbara's like, boys, I love you guys, but I've invested in two beverage companies so far and I've never lost my money faster. Cuban was like, you guys are onto something here. This is great, but it's going to require another $50 million before you can achieve success. And back then we kind of rolled our eyes, but he wasn't wrong. You know, we've raised 185 million over the last six months, six years. Um, so Shark Tank, even though we didn't get a deal, we were super disappointed. Like that's just the competitive athlete in us but we use it to our advantage and we would build displays in grocery stores. We'd tell the shopkeepers, the store managers, the, the owners, we're, we're going on Shark Tank this Sunday night. You got to get some product in this store because your customers are going to be looking for it. 
And I mean, we did that for years, you know, and, and what's nice is every time Shark Tank re-airs on CNBC, we do see a little bump on, on e-commerce sales. Um, so our sales team still use it, uses it as a weapon, but I think we've, we've outgrown this whole like Shark Tank brand piece. Yeah. Do you think you guys were a little early to market with the product you have now? Because like, in my opinion, 2016, 2017, people started caring about natural sweeteners and MCT and plant-based protein. But now it's like, it's everyone wants a transparency. Totally. Um, I don't think we were too early with the product, but our messaging back then was too early or just wrong. Like we would, we would say energy from healthy fats, protein plus MCT oil, keto approved. And what we realized is only a small segment of the audience of our population cared about that. Uh, so now really in 2019, we shifted the messaging from like protein and MCT oil to positive energy tastes like a Starbucks Frappuccino, but 299, you know, zero sugar. So like the, the, the shift went from the function of the product to now the flavor, right? This thing tastes great and it's good for you. So we just simplified the messaging, but the product still provides all the same benefits. What made you guys identify that? Was it an outside consulting group, someone in house, or did you guys personally identify that messaging? Yeah, I think what's great about being behind the, the demo table, pouring samples, is you you get that. You know, nine out of ten customers would say, "What's MCT oil, right?" And why do I care about this? You know, and then everybody else would be like, "This tastes great." You know, I love the flavor here. And flavor, then we sort of um, justified those those insights that we were having with actual data. You know, flavor is the number one purchase driver even today. It's why brands that are loaded with calories and sugar do so well because as human beings, we want stuff that tastes good. You know, and and if there's no, there's still like we're, our society is so far behind on like the education of the dangers of sugar. You know, just about every metabolic disease or, or heart condition is tied to a bad diet, you know, and, and those bad diets are loaded with vegetable oil, like you said, and, and excess sugar. Uh, but people don't care to, to do the education there. They just care that it tastes good. So for us, it's almost like a, a Trojan horse, like, hey, this thing tastes good. Don't worry about what's inside of it. And if you do care about what's inside of it, you're going to be pleasantly surprised because it's all the right stuff. So you're selling the features instead of the benefits yeah. early on. Yeah. yeah we, we recently did a, an in-house workshop with this company called StoryBrand. Okay. It's owned by Donald Miller, who is the author of Business Made Simple. Nice. And the StoryBrand is a seven-part framework that helps you tell a story and clarify your message cool. through copy. And we found that the past two years, was what we thought was good copy and good messaging was actually way too much. We were trying to tell people way too much about what we do, what we offer, what we can do for them. And it was overwhelming. And we simplified that in the last couple months. And we've seen a big return because we were trying to sell the features of everything, all our products, our business. And we shifted that to, to promoting the benefits over the features. So a, a big change. Dude, I love it. And I mean, there's so many insights there, right? Human beings can only process so much information at once. If you're in retail on the shelf, like we are, you only have three seconds to get that, that message communicated. And, and I think RX bar is a brand that does a good job with this, like eight almonds, two egg whites, whatever it is right on the front. And, and that's why that, that brand took off. But the brands that, that to me make the most sense are the ones that are the simplest, you know, bark thins, snacking chocolate, our, our buddies run Truff, the, the hot sauce company. They don't call it hot sauce. They call it luxury condiments. You know, like 
those that, that you can clearly articulate the value proposition in one or two words that make sense. It's like, oh, of course I understand that. Let me get it. It's really e- easy early on when you're getting started, especially when you're very passionate about your business and your product to want to tell people everything. Yeah. I was the same way. I look back at when I built our first website, you know, say for example, one of our products has 10 ingredients. I felt the need to educate the, the viewer, the consumer, the potential customer on every study, every reference of every ingredient. And what I realized is people ended up on that product page and saying, am I an idiot or do I not, am I missing something? There's way too much here. Yeah. And yeah, clarity is, is so important in terms of messaging, branding, marketing. Totally. I mean, you're always going to have the early adopters who appreciate that stuff, you know, and, and we're just more subtle with the messaging now. Like we'll say MCT oil hidden in the ingredient statement. It's a positive ingredient. But what we realized is like, I'm a big fan of healthy fats. You know, I don't do keto or anything like that, but I think healthy fats are, are critical to healthy brain function, energy levels, all of these things. Medium chain triglycerides, avocados. I mean, everything that you were talking about um, earlier. Steric acid. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but fat is still taboo, right? Like people, the, the, I think it's the sugar industry, honestly, conditioned people that fat was bad for you. So go eat more, more carbs and bread and pasta. And even my girlfriend, she's going to kill me when she listens to this Harvard track athlete, the smartest girl I know, like this, one of the smartest people I know. Uh, and she's like, she eats, she buys low fat yogurt, you know, and she's, she's running, this is a girl who runs seven miles a day. She's training for a half Ironman. I'm like, baby, you got to get some, some healthy fats in there. She's like, no, fats, that's not good for me. Uh, and that's, that's sort of still this taboo that like society, uh, has, has. And I was like, from a brand perspective, we're not going to fight that educational battle. I'm not, it's not my job to convince people that fat is good for them. It's my job to sell a lot of coffee because I think that super coffee is good for them. and gives you energy benefits. Um, so rather than fighting this educational battle of why fats are good, we said this tastes good and it's good for you. You know, just made the message super simple. No, I love that. And I think there has been an issue in the past. It's probably two decades. I'd say probably the nineties is when low fat got really, really popular. And that has been so hard to just take out of people's mind and re-educate. Cause I, I love dietary fat. Mm-hmm. Like each day I probably consume 150 to 200 grams dietary fat mm-hmm. coming from uh, peanut butter coconut oil, avocados, beef tallow. I mean, for, for my lunch today, I had eight ounces of 80-20 grass-fed ground beef. Awesome. And I threw a tablespoon of beef tallow on top of that. So I wanted that, that steric acid. I'm a huge fan of fat, but it's really hard to convey that message to people mm-hmm. when all these other brands and people are, are, are promoting low-fat, low-fat, low-fat. But what are you compromising to get that low-fat? Right what's being added or taken away in order to get those healthy fats in your diet. And that's why I really appreciate like super coffee. I don't look at nutrition labels really anymore. I look at the ingredients. I want to know what's, what's in the product. I I really could care less what, what the, the fat carbs and and protein is on a lot of stuff. I mean, give or take, I'm I'm conscious of it, but I want to know what are the individual ingredients in this product? Totally. Totally. And, and, but you've done countless hours of research, right? And some people are, are like that. I think, I think right now on this podcast, we're, we're going to change the world. People, fat doesn't make you fat. <laughs> fat is good for you. Fat is good for your brain. Too much sugar, too many carbs that you're not burning, that your body doesn't need. That's the type of stuff that gets stored on fat. So 
on this day, what day is today? It's the 25th of January, 2022. We just changed the world. I mean, it's great for like hormone regulation as well. True. That's one thing I have found with endurance training is it when I go into deeper endurance training blocks, I need to almost double my dietary fat intake. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm adding fats on top of fats. Mm -hmm. Makes me feel better. I perform better. I, I have a clearer mind. My energy throughout the day is just, it's spot on, but it's being smart with it. It's not, all right, I'm going to go eat 20 avocados right now. It's moderation. Totally. Which to that, like to me, at least as, as an athlete, this sort of hybrid athlete, I, I don't nearly put in as many miles as you, but even that is, is almost taboo or niche to me in the sense that like, as an athlete, if you're running miles, like your body needs carbs to burn. And that, I think that's outdated education as well. You know, like as an endurance athlete, you're telling me that fat is the fuel that, that helps you regulate those hormones that are critical on a three hour run. You know, so I think finding that balance is, is critical and it is really trial and error, you know, cause what works for you might be different than what works for the next person who's trying the same program. Yeah. I mean, I know we're going down a little rabbit hole right now, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> in terms of, uh, endurance athletes, this is my last tidbit on this. Everyone is unique and specific, right? Mm -hmm. You'll find some people and it's becoming very popular in the endurance space right now, going towards a ketogenic diet, because when you're fat adapted, you're more efficient at burning fat in your body for energy for longer term use. Mm -hmm. Your body can only store so much carbohydrate in the form of glycogen, the liver and the muscles. But like my, my ultra marathon coach, Zach Bitter, he runs world record like races at hundred miles being a keto athlete. It's amazing. And, uh, I love my fats, but I love my carbs around training, totally. but, um, I, I mean, I'll eat a, I'll eat a, a grass fed ribeye steak seven out of seven days a week. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. You can't beat that. You can't beat that. Yeah. I, I think the thing about being fat adapted and we'll, we'll move on from this one is like, it's, you need so much discipline. You know, Dr. Rhonda Patrick was on Rogan a few months ago and she was like, yeah, everybody who thinks they're in keto are not, right? All these products on shelves that say keto, these breakfast bars and sauces and like carb alternatives, th that throws you out of ketosis so quickly. And I think to truly maintain that, that fat adaption, you really have to, uh, you really have to be disciplined and committed. No, absolutely. It's like uh, Dr. Paul Saladino follows animal, animal-based diet, super disciplined on that diet. He doesn't stray away from it. Right. So, I mean, ingredients are powerful. Food is powerful. I've been saying that for years and uh, there's, there's good products available like super coffee mm -hmm. that are, are better alternatives to, you know, to others. So after shark tank in, in 2018, what did the, what was the next step? Was it our, all right, we didn't get this deal with shark tank. Now we need to go raise more capital. Yeah. So didn't, didn't do the deal on shark tank, ended up raising $15 million later that year at a $50 million valuation. So it, what, what's, the story that I spun was, hey, we went on Shark Tank in February at a $10 million valuation. Since then, we've done nearly $5 million in revenue. We're now a $50 million company. So eight months after Shark Tank, we were raising at five times the value that we, we got turned down on. Really, it was, it was a full year after because the episode was filmed in June the year before. Um, so we raised $15 million that year, did $4 million pretty much in the Northeast from D.C. to Boston. Shark Tank was national exposure for us. So from, we saw e-commerce orders coming in from all over the country we used those as these sort of um, focal points or like hotbeds for where we expanded our, our um, retail footprint. So we launched Texas with HEB, which is a regional grocer. We launched Chicago with Meyer, another regional grocer. 
And with that 15 million, we grew from 4 million in revenue in 2018 to 26 million in 2019. Still pretty much a regional brand. 2019, I think we may have raised a convertible note to just bridge some cash. 2020, right before the pandemic hit, we raised our series B. We we brought on like 25 million bucks at a $200 million valuation. So a f- 18 months after our series A, we're now, the company's now four times as valuable. Revenue's five times higher. 2020, we went from 26 million in revenue to 55 million. So we doubled the business during the pandemic, which there was no benefit to single serve bottled coffee from the pandemic. You know, foot traffic was demolished in, in convenience stores and gas stations. Um, grocery stores were cart size was up because people were bulk bulk buying groceries, but frequency of trips was down. So it, 2020 was a battle for us to grow, um, continued to burn cash. And then in 2021, we grew from 55 million to like about 85 million in revenue. Uh, and in the middle of last year, we raised a hundred million dollar series C at a $500 million valuation. And thankfully that is the, enough cash to fuel our next three years of growth. So I mean, my job for the last six years was full-time fundraiser. There wasn't a month that went by. I suppose like once we closed around, I didn't have to worry about raising money, but I was always worried and wondering and planting seeds and relationships of where that next round was going to come from because I knew in order to continue to grow at the rate we wanted to grow, it was going to require outside capital. And at, at this point in, in 2020, what was your, the split between e-commerce sales and retail? So for the last three years, it's been about 80% retail, 20% e-com. And of e-com, it's about 50-50, drinksupercoffee.com and Amazon. So it's about half D2C and half Amazon. And when you raised this capital, what were you raising this capital for? Was it inventory, production, marketing? Where where was it being allocated to? Yeah, um, marketing has always been about 20% of our net revenue. So uh, with our gross margin is about like 30%, right? So if 20% of our net revenue is going to marketing, uh, that, that leaves very little to, for, for payroll, for all GNA expenses. Um, so at, at the end of the day, I mean, we're each year we're sort of inching towards profitability, but we're, we're finally getting to a point where the infrastructure that we've built, uh, can, can, our revenue can grow faster than the infrastructure, right? So 2019, 2020, even 2021, we hired at the same rate that our sales grew. So we weren't really getting any of these benefits from the infrastructure because, to grow sales by 2x, our team doubled, you know, but now we have a team in place that can support 200 to 300 million in sales. Uh, but it was a lot of upfront investment, which is where the cash burn occurred. If you didn't have this background in investment banking before coming to work for Super Coffee, how do you guys think you would have navigated this growth? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was still only three months in that world. I think I got to, to see what the, how that world operated and, and the importance of it. Uh, but really the first four years at super coffee, we built that network of investment bankers because a good investment banker is planting seeds for businesses that are two to three to five years down the road, uh, away from selling or raising, you know, so, uh, and, and investment bankers want to prove their worth. They want to prove to you that they are the best person to sell your company someday and make you a lot of money. So they have all these analysts, they have all of these resources and all of this data. So every year, I, I guess what I got good at was going to them saying, Hey, Nick from Deutsche Bank, like, love you, man. We're, we're probably 18 months away from a sale process, but in order to t- get ready for that, we'd love to see how the bottle coffee category is performing. Can you have your analyst send me a report? 
We do that with Bank of America. We do that with uh, Goldman. We do that with a bunch of boutique banks too. And and I mean, it wasn't. I didn't feel like I was leading people on. I felt like I really wanted to to get a lay of the land. And and the data that they provided cost. It would cost a company like ours hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, but we used it to our advantage and, and I still maintain those relationships, you know, so we're not, I don't feel like we're cheating on anybody and, and we haven't signed on the dotted line with anybody yet. They're still very much earning our business. That's a, that's such an insight into business that when you first get started, you don't even realize is a path, right? You know, and I think there's a lot of people that, that listen to these episodes in this podcast who are, who are just starting their business and there's this really hard transition where what you think building a business looks like at the beginning is not, it's not the reality of it. Right. Like you see the, you feel the passion, you feel the energy in the beginning, but most of, most of being an entrepreneur and business owner, it's not sexy. Totally. It's not right. It's, it's, it's raising money. It's, it's going out and building. It's, it's being resourceful and creative in uh, and most of the time, a different sense than creating videos and, and content. But in order to get certain parts of a business, if you want to take it to above and beyond the world, there are things you need to learn and implement along the way. And a lot of that is relationship building. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, business is, is people, right? Like a brand or the culture that you create at your company is just a collection of the personalities and the people and the values who, who work there. Uh, and all of that just comes down to being a good human being, finding common ground, uh, being relatable. You know, and, and, and for me, I think that that networking relationship piece is something that I'm passionate about. One, because we've never done this before, right? So uh, we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought we had this figured out and we're not afraid to ask questions. That's probably comes from our background as athletes as well. You know, we are very coachable, you know, and, and we're not afraid to ask for help. So I think that has enabled us to grow further faster because we'd reach out to some of the best and brightest who came before us and built brands like Vitamin Water and Smart Water and buy and honest tea. And, and we'd reach out to these guys and say, Hey, here's, here's some of the challenges we're facing. How did you guys navigate this? So we'd get those insights from the best and then we'd apply them to our business. Really we'd filter them because our business is different than theirs. Um, and I think that was critical, but then in terms of like people and, and the business you build, what we found now that we're, we're expanding, being crystal clear about your culture and what, what's important to you attracts people who share those values. Right. Cause in the early days, like our culture was Jake Jordan and I showing up and doing it and then hiring people who saw that close enough. And we're like, all right, I like these guys. I want to do it with them. Uh, but now to your, to your question in the beginning about like, how do you manage a remote team and make sure that everybody's working towards the same goals? It's, it's critical to have clear values that people understand and are measured against. When did you start feeling that shift in the hiring process where it went from because we're, we're kind of at a point now where when we built BPN, it was me and my brother, and we added Joe. It was the three of us. And we were working the warehouse. We were filming the videos, doing everything. And then slowly but almost naturally, people became attracted to the brand, and they fit the culture. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, we didn't know where we were going to put them, but I said, like, I like you. I like your mindset. I like your positivity there's potential. I don't know what you're going to do, but I need you to work for BPN. Yeah. Need you to be a part of it. Eventually you get to a point and BPN reaches a point where you can't really keep hiring based off this, this premise or this basis. You need to hire experience and talent. When was that for you guys where you realized 
all right, we, we need to start bringing some experience in here to take the business to the next level. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a tough challenge and, and it, I don't think anybody has nailed this yet, but from in, in 2018 to 2019, we went from 15 employees to 50 and we knew we were going to grow after we raised that round of 15 million. Um, the 15 people looked a lot like us. You know, some of them played football and basketball with us in college because we trusted them. Exactly the reasons you said, we're like, we don't know what, what you do. We know you work hard. We know you're loyal. We know you got our backs and we got yours. Um, and, and that worked for a little while. Uh, the, the trouble with it is like, they, they looked a lot, a lot like us, you know, my, my, we don't have any sisters in our family. We're, we're three white brothers. Uh, and I think knowing that we were going to grow from 15 to 50, we wanted to put principles in place to build a diverse organization. So I, I studied philosophy in college and I, I, I noticed on LinkedIn, one of my professors was doing some like ethics consulting on the side. And I, I love this guy. He was, he was my favorite professor at Colgate, Reed Blackman. I hit him up. I was like, Reed, we're about to grow. We just raised some money. Can you help us put some structure around our values and our recruiting processes? Uh, and the good news is like those values stayed the same. And, and today it's our, our values are summarized in this, this acronym we call coach, curious, optimistic, ambitious, compassionate, and humble. And each one of those things is broken out. And every single one of our employees is measured against each of those values from their direct, from their manager to their direct reports on a quarterly basis. But the good news is like, you can live up to those coach values if you are a gay man or a, a black woman or, or anything like that, right? You don't have to be a white college football player to live up to the coach values. And I think once we cracked that code, we attracted people from all walks of life uh, because the, the, the reason that's critical to us is everybody drinks super coffee. You know, once you put a product in Walmart, you're going to attract every demographic in America to buy it. And we needed to speak to those audiences, which is why building out that team and don't get me wrong. We, we still got a lot of work to do. You know, there's, there's certainly more men than women at our organization, but we're building, you know, we're building towards that. And I think having that clear value structure is allowing us to attract that, that proper talent. It's an interesting part of the business because one, it's in the beginning things you never think about working on, right? Think about selling more coffee. Totally. And the bigger you get, the more you realize you're not thinking about selling coffee. You're thinking about other problems in the business. Someone else is worried about selling the coffee now. Totally. Now that's, that's the, the bitter sweetness of, of growth and, and scaling. Totally. Now as a CEO, what is for you the most passionate part of the business? Is it the product? Is it the people? Is it the mission? Is it the growth? Is it the momentum? What is it? Yeah. I think to, to what you just said, we have to remind ourselves often that we sell coffee. You know, it's a simple thing. We can't make it complicated and it's easy to get complicated because you worry about so many things that aren't selling coffee. Um, and for me, I, I've really, the last couple months, I've sort of defined my role. I've been working with an executive coach for the last couple of years. My brothers work with them as well and define my role in five buckets. Like what, what, what I struggle with is I'm not a specialist at anything and that, that hurts my identity, right? Like I want to be a, be good at something. I want to know what I stand for, what I work on. But as a CEO, that's not my job. You know, my, my job is to work with my brothers, to align the company, to, one, to set a vision, right? Where are we going? And then align the company around that vision. And, and that alignment is critical. Here's where we're going. Here are the KPIs of how we're going to measure on our, our progress. Uh, and here's timelines, deadlines, all of the, the things that support that alignment. Uh, hiring the best team, getting the right people aligned around that vision, giving them the resources they need to be great at their jobs. Jordan says it, it's a Steve Jobs quote, 
uh, why hire smart people and tell them what to do? We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. That's why being clear on the vision and aligning on that vision is important because smart people are going to do things the best way they know how, uh, but you have to aim them in the right direction. And then the the last part of my role is, is chief learning officer. I have to stay ahead of trends. Like we don't want to get caught flat footed. I have to constantly be elevating my game because the company has transformed so much over the last seven years that a lot of people, I mean, we've had to say goodbye to some amazing people who were maybe the right person from 1 million to 5 million, but not the right person from five to 50, you know? And for me and my brothers, like we cannot be ever be in that situation. So uh, that's probably the part that I'm most passionate about is the learning and learning from advisors, learning from the network, the outreach, the, the making yourself vulnerable to ask questions is what I enjoy the most. It comes with a lot of, a lot of responsibility. Totally. And I'd say it comes with a lot of obligations, but it comes with more responsibility because as you're, as you're in charge of and managing more people who have families, who have hobbies, who have, who have lives in their own, that can weigh really, really heavy. Totally on, on an individual. And uh, that's why I go back to thinking about it all the time. Like the deeper I get into being an entrepreneur, to be a business owner, I mean, the, the things that we're working on this year, six months ago, I didn't know we'd be working on. Right. You know, you're learning new parts of the business and you're always humbled because you realize, I really don't know that much. Like in 10 years from now, I hope I look back at what I was when I was 31 and laugh at, you thought you knew. Totally. Just wait. And that's why I look at entrepreneurs and I'm like, man, it's, it's such an amazing opportunity and learning experience where you're constantly getting kicked and thrown to the ground, but you just keep stepping back up yeah, and just keep fighting. Totally, man. And, and, and that, we talked about this before we came on air. You learn that the hard way, right? You learn that by choosing to do the hard things through the military, in the weight room, through organized sports. Not, you don't even need to be a college athlete, but uh, pushing yourself through perceived limits is what has enabled us to do what we do because it'd be so easy to quit. You know, it'd be so easy to say, I don't want to do this. You know, let me go back to wall street and make six figures and, and have an easier life. Um, so I, I think pushing through those limits is the secret sauce to being an entrepreneur. You know, it's kind of like as corny as he is sometimes it's just David Goggins, you know, like you are, you are capable of so much more than you think you are. You know, better than anybody what you're capable of, but it's hard, man. There's no easy way to figure that out. It's like you said before we started recording um, about stress. And it's that as you grow, as you become bigger, your problems become bigger. Mm -hmm. And your stress doesn't go away. Your stress, if anything, increases and gets larger. But you just become more accustomed to adapting and dealing with stress. So like the things that used to bother you in 2016... Now it's just like a daily occurrence. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll handle that. We'll deal with that. Right. And, and I think that is something that has to be expected. Yeah. Like when, you, when you go in, I'm a big fan of Tim Grover mm -hmm. and his book, Winning. And he talks about that when you go after that next big win. Like every, everyone in life has to have their first win, whether that's the first time you walked or graduating high school or getting married. That win came with some sort of sacrifice. Mm-hmm in order to go for that next win, which most people want to win to level up, mm -hmm. that next win is going to cost more in terms of sacrifice. And every win after that, as bigger as it gets, the sacrifice and consequences and risk is larger. Mm -hmm. And you just, you just become accustomed to dealing with 
with more of it. Absolutely, man. And, and I know a lot of your listeners are athletes, but when I hear you say that, I think of like setting a PR, right? Setting a PR on the weight room, setting a PR on the track, setting a PR when you run, that's your new personal best. That's the bar, right? And, and to get above that bar, you have to work so damn hard to get 1% better, right? Like it's, it's easy to get to 90% and to close the gap on that last 10% is so difficult. And I think in year seven of super coffee, that's what we're facing, right? Like we, our, our, our mantra this year is small wins daily right? Like we have to do the basics better than anybody else this year, stocking the shelves, pouring the samples, closing voids, uh, making sure that like, there's no silver bullet to this. It's putting in the work consistently over time that separates the good from the great, you know, or the great from the good. With every new year that you go into, do you always feel like, cause I do, I always feel like we're just getting started. Oh yeah. It's almost like this new page turns where you, th- you you're reading a book, for example, and you think the book is about to end and you go and turn the page and there's like a hundred more pages. Totally. And you're like, I have all this book still to read. I have all this to learn still. For me, it's what every year feels like. I feel like I'm still just getting started. And I've been at it for 10 years. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. And that's the thing that people think like they can come in and, and get rich quick in two to three years. I think it takes at least 10, you know, it takes a decade. That's a career, you know, and, and, and to that point, like every milestone you achieve, you're like, oh, damn that goal line just got further, you know, like the, the, the milestones become bigger, the vision becomes grander. Uh, and in terms of just getting started, we say that all the time and the guys and girls who have been with us for like three to four years, like, fuck me, if we're just getting started, like we just broke our back for four years. You know, I don't know if I got another four in me, but they, they, they see the optimism in it. Um, and I think that's the hardest part too, because we always see so much opportunity ahead of us. It's staying disciplined right? You can't say yes to everything. You know, you have to stay focused and invest all of your time, focus and resources into the, the task at hand. So what does the, the vision, the future of, of Super Coffee look like? Yeah. So right now we're, we are only uh, available in the U.S. Um, so I think international expansion, like we want to be the healthy coffee on every shelf that there's a Starbucks Frappuccino globally. So I would say the next three to five years, that's our main focus. We still have a lot of work to do in the U.S., but Expanding to Mexico and Canada is probably the the logical next step. China drinks five times more bottled coffee than the U.S. Japan per capita. Bottled coffee was invented in Japan. You know, so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there that's white space. Um, So continuing to develop the U.S. and then expanding internationally is the next five-year plan. I haven't really thought about it after that. I would like to to talk about some partnerships you guys have formed. Sure. Um, You know, you guys recently partnered with Poopery. Oh, yeah. And dude, that campaign was me and my VP of marketing were like, that was genius. Let's go. That was absolutely genius. Like super coffee and poopery. So first off, how did that come about? And whose idea was it? Was it super coffees or was it poopery? Yeah. Oh man. It's funny. Cause it's not an obvious one. Like it, it is obvious because you, coffee makes you poop. Right. But it's not obvious. And from a brand perspective, um, one of our investors introduced us to Susie Batiste, who's the founder of Poopery. She's right up in Dallas. And we chatted. She was like, Jimmy, I created this coffee scent years ago. I've been waiting for a coffee brand to do this. Do you guys want to do this? And then our chief creative officer is one of the best I've ever worked with. He, he says, uh, he's like, guys, we're not going to be remembered by, for being safe, right? Like we're going to be remembered for, for scroll stopping material stuff that people remember and recount. Um, so it just turned into this fun, playful thing. You know, you're, you're sort of talking about something that's usually not socially appropriate to talk about, uh, in a way that's funny, you know, and, and we only made a thousand of the kits, but it was, it was great media. 
Um, and it, dude, it's funny too. Cause like this concept of grass is always greener. We're always looking at other brands like, dang, they crushed that or dang. And why, why didn't I think of that? You, you, especially with, especially with your personal brand. And I mean, this, everything that you've built here at HQ has been awesome. And, and we're constantly taking notes of like, what can we borrow from, from others to, to advance? So I appreciate the compliment on that. Yeah. We were looking at that and the, the reason I loved it so much is because it's not obvious. Right. If someone was like, Hey, do you want to collab with his poop spray? Right. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But coffee and poopery, man, like hats off to you guys. Good job with that one. Thank you, brother. And then, uh, I really want to know, you know, obviously you brought on these investors and I'm sure over time you've built these relationships and these connections. How did you get to a point where you guys are making this coffee out of a college apartment to now convincing people like Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez to invest in the brand? How was that connection made and and how did that come to life? Totally. Yeah. So I mean, it all comes back to, to networking, right? Fundraising is just networking and relationships. And um, one of our early investors from 2018 uh, works in LA. He's at a private equity shop in LA and, and he did a deal with some guy who had a bat, a baseball bat company who knew A-Rod, right? And the opportunity came up at, over coffee and he was like, hey, we, we have a chance to, to get in front of A-Rod. Do you want, do you want an introduction? So what, what's into the, like the lesson in that is that this guy at the private equity shop we saw him as a financial investor, but the key to networking is one built, actually caring in the relationship, investing in the relationship, building up that, that common ground, uh, because you never know who his best friend is. Right. And I tell college kids this all the time. Like if you want to be a doctor, but one of the alumni from your school is a lawyer, maybe that lawyer's best friend is the doctor at the hospital that you want to work at. Right. So don't write that person off and always show up and work hard and be nice to people is, is what we say, say a lot. Um, so that's how we got to A-Rod. And then, uh, we, we did a zoom call with him. It was, this was last summer of 2020. So two summers ago. Uh, and in the, in the zoom, he was talking, he was asking good questions. He wanted to invest. A-Rod wants to be a business billionaire. Like he, he, he reached the pinnacle of his career in baseball. He's now mentored by Warren Buffett and, and Jeff Bezos and guys like that. And, uh, so he was, he was keen to make a, a big partnership with super coffee but we see this woman's arm in, in the zoom. And we're like, holy shit, that's JLo. And, and sure enough, she pops in and she's like, what's up boys. I don't drink a lot of coffee, but love your stuff. Um, so for us, that was super cool to, yeah. to, to be a part of that. But what, what struck me was his, his humility, right? He was asking questions. He was like, so explain to me the terms of this around, explain to me the plan for growth. You know, he was, he was eager to learn and the student, which made that, which made the partnership awesome. You know, he gets back to my emails right away. Like he's, He's been a great partner for the last almost two years now. Was that like a mind blowing opportunity for you when you, when you were presented with that or was it at that point in the business believable? Did you think that, yeah, A-Rod will invest in this business. Why, why wouldn't he? At that point I had a little more confidence, you know, I, I didn't, I, I still always have this imposter syndrome, you know, kind of like why us or why am I the guy that, that's leading these people are following, you know? Um, but at that point, like, yeah, it was, it was kind of a little fake it till you make it where we showed up to that meeting with swagger and confidence. We're Yankees fans. We grew up in New York. You know, mm -hmm. my brother wore number 13 because of A-Rod. So like there was, there was definitely some nostalgia there. Um, but nobody knows super coffee better than the three of us. And we had that confidence going into that meeting. 
Uh, I think the thing that, that shifted doing that deal, I mean, JLo's ar- arguably one of the largest celebrities ever, right? And, and, and doing that deal, you sort of think that it's go- there's going to be a silver bullet or it's going to change the trajectory of the business. And what we found out is it just doesn't, you know, like they're, granted, we didn't do an endorsement deal. Like sh- she's not the face of the brand. She's an investor and we got to use her likeness a couple of times, but it didn't impact revenue. It didn't impact followers on Instagram. It didn't really change any of those things. I think part of that is due to the diversification of media. It's tough for any one personality to cut through the way that they used to back even 10 years ago, you know, before Instagram and TikTok were so popular. It's a different space now. It's a different space now. And and that's why I admire what you guys do so much because you have an army of people who cut through, right? It's not just one person. So I would say to anybody who thinks that a celebrity partnership is the answer, be very careful by putting all of your eggs in one basket. I think it's much better to, to share those funds amongst a, a loyal community of, of micro influencers. And I've seen a lot of brands and I know a lot of people who have put all their eggs in a basket for a celebrity or professional endorse, endorsement deal. And that deal went sour real quick yeah. and they lost a lot of money, which is, and we, we've fortunately never been in that position, but we've watched it. And we've been very cautious about those deals because the landscape, like you said, is changing. Totally. 10 years ago, that might've made a big splash, a big impact. But now it just really doesn't. Totally. And, and they require so much. Athletes require, they, they think their, their name, image, and likeness is so valuable. And especially when you start negotiating with these agencies, the CAAs of the world, the WMEs, they're like, hey, if you want so-and-so to show up in an Instagram post, that's $100,000. It's like, there's no way we're going to make a hundred thousand dollars off of them posting on Instagram. You know, JLo could have charged us 500 grand for that, that Instagram post and brands do pay her that price. Like I said, no followers, no spike in sales. If, if anything was a good PR headline, you know, we got a lot of earned media from it and we were able to go raise money because of like, it's, it's similar the same way Shark Tank was in 2018. It's a stamp of approval. You know, it's validating. And I mean, you need that. Like that's PR. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 uh, it's authority, it's credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this this framework with uh, StoryBrand, it, it's it's leveraging your authority, right? But it's also using empathy, you know, empathizing with other people. Mm. When you're talking about building these relationships, um, it makes me think of this book I'm reading right now called Give and Take. Okay, and super super powerful read, and it's all about like you don't you don't know when that opportunity is going to present itself to you. Be a good person. Be a kind person. Like some of the, the greatest opportunities and success stories have come out of someone investing time, money, energy, and resources into something or someone for a, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. They didn't want anything out of it. But then one day that turned around and there was an opportunity for them. Right. You just keep giving. You just keep giving. And I think there's a balance between knowing when to say no and not give and, and when to give. But- it doesn't always have to be mutual at that moment in time, Yep. but there's a possible opportunity in the future and that pays off. Dude, you, you nailed that. And I think that's, what's tricky right now is especially with all this LinkedIn outreach, like people are like, they're coming off as benevolent, but it's super transactional, you know? So we have the trust equation where it's credibility. Like, is this person who he or she says she is, does that, do they have the, the, the sort of credentials to back it up? reliability. Do they do what they say they're going to do? Um, credibility, authenticity, like, are they, are they real in, in how they come off? If all of those things are true, 
you divide it by self-interest, right? Because for instance, like if I gave the whole company off on Friday and said, you know what team, we're taking Friday off. You guys have been working your asses off. Like you, you earned this. Come to find out that Friday, my team sees me sitting on the beach in Cancun because I had a vacation planned that day. That's self-interest, you know, that I didn't do that out of the good of my heart. I did that because it benefited me. That's, that's a move that jeopardizes trust. So I think, I think to your point about building these relationships uh, and giving, 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 doing it for no other reason than it's good, right? Just being a generous human. If you give with this expectation that you're going to get something back, I think people see through that. And, and that's when relationships are, are shattered. And I, and I consider myself a very aware, even most hyper aware person. I can, I read situations. I'm always listening and I identify those things. Like I can tell if someone's making a move that has strategy and intention for their own personal win rather than the win of the group. And I just, I store that in my mental bank. You know, I have a bunch of these mental stores in my mind and I'll pull them out when the time is right. But I'm, I'm always reading people because I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes you can't. Totally. Dude, no doubt. And I have an admission to make here on air. So I brought, I brought two cases of super coffee to the office. One, because you're my friend and I want you to drink them. I was hoping you were going to bring some actually. Let's go. And two, because you have 500,000 followers and I'm like, hopefully Nick puts this on his story. Oh, you know what? Well, <laughs> dude, go. every time someone like either Devin or, or Churchill brings super coffee here, it gets stocked in our fridge and it's gone in hours. I'm like, I didn't even get one. <laughs> the whole team just drinks it. It's so good. Dude, we should honestly do a collab. We should do like a super coffee powder for BPN. That'd be super cool. That'd be awesome. I mean, we've we've been dreaming about some high margin powders, but uh need the partner to do it. So we'll we'll take that off air. Dude, absolutely. Let's go. Well, Jim, man, I appreciate you, dude. Thanks for sharing the story. It's been epic and uh watching you and the team grow. Super, super cool. Dude, right back at you. The the respect is mutual and, and thanks for the opportunity today. This was fun. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to if you enjoyed it. It helps us to grow and reach more people with the intent of changing lives through the Go One More mindset. If you are ready to take your health and performance to the next level, head over to bpnsups.com to take the first step. We offer a wide range of effective supplements to help you perform at your highest level, built on quality and proven by results without compromise.